On September 11th, 2001, our American way of life was attacked. Everyone remembers where they were that day and how their lives changed from that moment on. The American Legion is committed to honoring the memories of those we lost on 9-11 and in the global war on terrorism that followed. As part of that commitment, the American Legion Tango Alpha Lima podcast presents a special series, 9-11-2020. 20 episodes in the 20 days leading up to the 20th anniversary of the attacks that changed the world. Each of the 20 guests delivers a unique first-hand perspective on 9-11 and our nation's response. Here is one of those remarkable stories. Okay, today's guest is Rob Jones. He's from the small town of Lovettsville, Virginia. He joined the Marine Corps Reserve as a combat engineer with Bravo Company 4th Combat Engineer Battalion. He deployed to Iraq in 2008 and again to Sangin Province in Afghanistan in 2010, where he was wounded by a landmine resulting in the amputation of his legs. During his recovery at Walter Reed, he began rowing and began training for the 2012 Paralympics. In 2013, he began a solo supported bike ride across America, which started in Bar Harbor, Maine, and ended in Camp Pendleton, California, to raise money for the injured Marine Semper Fi Fund and Ride to Recovery. And in 2017, he ran 31 marathons in 31 days in 31 different cities. I am very eager to hear about that. But Rob, let's uh, start as we do on these 9-11 and, and tell us about your 9-11 experience. Now, you were probably sophomore or junior in high school, uh, but tell us what grew up and, and where you went from there. Yeah, I was actually, I think I was a sophomore and, you know, it, I was just a, a young teenager at the time. So I, I was, I didn't really know what exactly was going on and what the repercussions of it were going to be long-term. Um but yeah, I just remember them saying it over the announcement of the announcing uh, PA system in school. And we didn't really have TVs, so we didn't really, we weren't sitting there watching it on TV. So I just remember them kind of announcing it. And then I didn't really find out everything that had happened until I went home and my parents kind of told me about it. And then we were able to, you know, watch the news. Um, but you know, it didn't, at the time, it didn't particularly, it didn't inspire me to join the military or anything. Cause like I said, I was a kind of a young kid and I was more into computers and that kind of thing, a little bit more self-involved um, than, than I am now, or I, I became. And so I just kind of continued on my, you know, my normal path that I had planned for myself, which was to go to college and try and make video games. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell us how you did come to be, to end up being a combat engineer. Yeah, well, I, I went down to Virginia Tech um, studying computer science, and I don't know, I, I just wasn't a very good student at down at Virginia Tech, and I started to become isolated, and I, I wasn't doing very well in my major, and I felt kind of lonely, and I felt like I didn't have very many friends, and so I kind of came to this crisis point where I realized I wasn't going to I wasn't going to graduate college in four years. It was going to take me a year or two extra. And I don't know, I just felt like there were pieces from my life that were missing and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what pieces I needed to find. And so it just so happens, luckily, a, a buddy of mine had joined the Marine Corps the year before. And so just on a, out of curiosity, I kind of went on the Marine Corps website to see, uh, you know, what he was going to be doing. And it wasn't, I was intrigued, you know, they have the top images there from, you know, of 
Marines shooting rifles and crawling through the mud and firing artillery and marching around in dress blue uniforms. So that really brought, took me in at the right moment. And so I went down to the library to do a little bit more research. And I found this book called Brotherhood of Heroes about the Battle of Pele Lu uh, in World War II. And that, and in that book, I read, I found what I, what the pieces that were missing from my life, like selflessness and courage and brotherhood. And so I figured the best way to find those pieces was to do what these men I just read about did and join the Marine Corps and go to war. Did, now, did you uh, join specifically with a goal of being a combat engineer or were you just? I didn't. Um, I wanted to do I wanted to do a, a role that was I was going to be on the front lines fighting. Um, and so I think my vision was to I think I wanted to be in the in tanks. Uh, originally, uh, or like radio man, I kind of wanted to do something unique as well. So, uh, but it didn't work out that way because my recruiter convinced me that I should finish my last year of college first and then apply to OCS and be an officer. Mm -hmm. And he also convinced me that it would be good to join the reserves for my last year, get a little bit of experience and that would look good on my OCS package. And so the reserve unit that was closest to Blacksburg was a combat engineer unit and they didn't have any billets besides combat engineer. And so I kind of became a combat engineer, but it worked out really well because uh, it's a job on the front lines a lot of the time and you're doing a role that is one of the most dangerous roles in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, finding IEDs and using explosives. And so it, went, it ended up being perfect for me because it gave me that uh, courage, brotherhood, and selflessness that I was seeking through having to be the one to go out and try and find IEDs for my fellow Marines. All right. So tell us a little bit about your deployment first to Iraq and then to Sangin province. Um, yeah, you know, my Iraq deployment, there, there wasn't a whole lot going on in Havani anymore. So we spent the vast majority of the time, instead of finding IEDs, we were finding buried weapons caches. So we were kind of in the build portion of the clear hole build strategy. And so what we were what we were kind of trying to bring security back to Habania and start making the civilians start feeling like they can go out again, like they are in a secure country and secure city. And so part of that was building Iraqi police stations and getting rid of anything that might hurt them when they go out. So buried weapons and uh, IEDs if we, if we found any, but we didn't, we didn't really find very many of those. And then um, Afghanistan on the other hand was really heating up um, in 2010. And so the, my role there was the route clearance role for um, uh, third battalion, seventh Marine. So I was their combat engineer. And whenever we came to an area where we thought there was a likelihood of an IED choke points and that kind of thing, they would send me or another combat engineer first, and we would use our metal detectors and our eyes to clear a path and then mark it. And then everybody else would come follow us and we would continue on. And so um, that's kind of what I was doing in Afghanistan. Yeah. So uh, and then just lastly, before we go off to Ashley, tell us about the, when you did get injured, what, what was going on that day and what happened, where did they take you first and what happened with that? We were doing a, a push into Taliban territory in Sangin, Afghanistan. We had just taken over from, uh, I guess, a British battalion. And we there was a vehicle column moving through the area, kind of taking care of I, laying these belts of IEDs that had been planted. 
and I was with a squad that was on the outskirts of that vehicle column uh, providing security. Um, so just looking out for ambushes that may be in wait on the sides. And we took a break um, around one o'clock in the afternoon and uh, the leaders had a little meeting and then we you know, ate a little bit of food and got some water and stood up. And our point man, I was second in the column and our point man started moving away and he stepped on an IED. Uh, we, so we heard this loud pop noise, um, but it turns out that the IED that he stepped on malfunctioned. So all that happened was the blasting cap and the IED went off and it didn't set off the main, the main charge. So he was uninjured uh, because it's just a little tiny explosion. But as most people know by now, where there's one IED, there's two, three, four, five, you know, they like to plant, plant them in clusters. And so that became, now became an area where it was a very high likelihood that there was going to be another IED. So I stepped forward and started to try and clear us through that area. And the IED that I stepped on worked correctly. Um, and that, you know, exploded when I stepped on it. And that severed my, my legs immediately. And it knocked me unconscious for about 20 seconds. Then I woke up and, you know, my guys uh, cleared to me with another engineer uh, because you can't just run over because there's going to be another IED probably. So they cleared to me. They put the tourniquets on. The corpsman eventually came and gave me a morphine shot. They loaded me onto a stretcher. The stretcher took me to a tank and the tank went and met a helicopter and the helicopter took me to uh, Camp Leatherneck, I think. Mm -hmm. And from there I went you know, to hospital, hospital to hospital. I think I went to Bagram and then uh, Lodstool and then back to America within five days or three, three, three to five days, I think. But they had stabilized you back at Leatherneck or? Yeah. I mean, I got the tourniquets on me at site of injury. So that pretty much stopped most of the bleeding. So then they, they stabilized slash revised uh, amputations uh, along the way. And then in Germany, I think I was only there for 12 hours. So I think they just stabilized me, kept me stable there and uh, waited for an aircraft. And then they, they try and get me, get you back to Bethesda as fast as they can. Cause that's where all the, I guess the most experienced orthopedic surgeons are where they can really piece you together. Yeah. All right, Ashley, you are up. All right. So, you know, as we kind of continue with your journey, um, that's incredibly traumatic and to have traveled and done so much in, in five days, right? Like we think about yeah. how long it takes us just to, to get overseas, right? Or so to be back and, you know, what were your first initial thoughts? That I mean, that moment when you're finally stabilized, you've come to, you're in Bethesda, you know, you're being worked on by these orthopedic doctors, um, surgeons, um, tell us a little bit more about like you coming to terms with your injury and, um, your rehabilitation process. Um, yeah. So my, my feelings initially at site of injury, right after I woke up from the IED, um, where I assumed that I would be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. I assumed that I was going to be, uh, having to have a caretaker. I was, I, I assumed I was gonna be living in my mom's house. And she was going to have to be looking after me 20, 24-7. Um, I wasn't going to be able to work out anymore. I wasn't going to be able to play racquetball or whatever thing I enjoyed doing. So I was asking everybody just to finish me off. Um, obviously, they, weren't, they were never going to do that. So they loaded me into the tank. And, but by the time I woke up, um, or my next memory 
was waking up in Germany, which you're not supposed to. Um, but I woke up and my squad leader confirmed that I had lost both legs above the knee. At least uh, the guys actually told me that my amputations were below the knee uh, at site of injury. And then I think that somewhere along the way, they revised that and I had to go above the knee. And so my squad leader informed me that they were actually above the knee. Um, and at that point, I don't remember having any particular feelings about that. But what I did try and do was I asked my squad leader to find a, I asked him to find a stupid or a funny looking hat that I could wear. Because the clear thought that I had at that point, even though I was in this really doped up morphine haze, was that my mom was going to be incredibly, she was going to be destroyed by hearing the news about my injury. And so what I figured was if I showed up at Bethesda or wherever I was going the first time she saw me and I had a stupid hat on, she would see me and, and she would be forced to laugh by this stupid hat that I was wearing. It would make her feel a little bit better. And so I think that was kind of the, the transition point for me where I went from wanting to be dead to, you know, accepting my injury. Um, because I, I realized that my mom was going to be affected by my injury. And so what I needed to do was, you know, basically just be okay, accept it and be okay and move on. Uh, and so because my mom initially just just my mom, I felt needed me to do that, but really it was my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, all these people that cared about me, including my friends back in Afghanistan that were that knew I was injured and were going to be, you know, looking on Facebook to see updates about me. And if they saw that I was struggling, they were going to be not hundred percent focused on what they needed to be. So they needed to see that I was going to be doing okay. And so I had all these people that were relying on me to be okay. So I manifested that in myself. Um, pretty much once I woke up in Bethesda, um, I was back to my normal jovial, um, optimistic uh, attitude. And I was able to accept my, my injury very quickly, I think because I was doing it on behalf of uh, people that I cared about more than myself. And then from there, uh, you know, I had the positive attitude and everybody saw me with it. And it just kind of, it was kind of like a, a positive feedback loop where I was positive and everybody else was too. And we just kind of, it just snowballed and snowballed. And then at that, it eventually was an un undeniable uh, there was no going back. I think that's incredibly powerful. I think from, you know, a post-traumatic growth standpoint and understanding an acceptance of, of, of what has happened and others that, you know, rely on you for support. So I think it's incredibly powerful. I think you're very resilient and strong and I really appreciate that. And I'll, uh, I'll push it over to Jeff. You're on mute. <laughs> I had helicopters flying over. I didn't think you guys wanted to hear. Uh, <laughs> the The person I'm looking at on the screen right here doesn't sound anything like the high schooler that you described. Uh, it, it seems like it's a string of selflessness after after uh, joining the Marine Corps. Which, by the way, a side note, you did a way you did way more research in joining the Marine Corps than I did. I <laughs> I looked at pictures and said, can't wear that, can't wear that, can't wear that. Oh yeah, I can wear that. And that's, <laughs> that's how I chose my branch. So, uh, whatever gets you there. Yeah. 
you served you served you served not just your country but individuals as well which is really powerful as ashley said and then you and you you didn't just come to terms with your injury you doubled down with that positivity and and getting back to working out and being uh back into sport and in fitness can you tell us some of the i don't want to spoil it i've read it but i don't want to spoil it some of your exploits in representing your country in in various ways and representing and raising money for individuals again being selfless representing your country and representing people uh mm -hmm. can you talk about some of the stuff you did to not just overcome but really embrace and excel in in spite of uh the injuries yeah sure well when i was early on in my recovery <clears throat> i really benefited from seeing other amputees that were further along in the recovery process than me and what i recognized subconsciously i don't think i you know totally understood what was happening but subconsciously i recognized that these uh, other amputees were examples for me uh, they were basically a vision into what my future could be if i was willing to put in the work uh, to do it. And, uh, one of those guys was Dan Knossen and ABC. They had the exact same injuries as me pretty much. And I would just see him in the clinic every day, just getting after it, you know, working out hard, uh, totally independent, doing everything I wanted to be able to do, walking around on prosthetic legs with no assistive devices whatsoever. And so that really motivated me, um, because I saw what was possible. And when, you know, something is possible, then it becomes a lot easier uh, to go and go after it and try and get it. And the reason I tell you about that is because eventually Dan left and all these amputees that were ahead of me left. And I sort of became um, one of the more advanced amputees in the clinic. And so what I noticed was that other amp the younger amputees were now looking at me and I recognized that now it's my turn to be this sort of mentor figure for these other amputees that are here. So they know what they can accomplish. And so I couldn't, I kind of took that to heart. And so whenever uh, they were always offering the clinic, all these races in the area, were always offering the clinic spots in their races. So triathlons and 5Ks and 10 milers and all these marathons and that kind of thing, we're always getting slots. So the, 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 the therapist would always go around saying, hey, so-and-so, do you want to run the Army 10 miler? Hey, so-and-so, you want to run the Marine Corps marathon? You want to do this, you want to do that? So every time they asked me, I said yes, um, because if I did it, then the other amputees would, would you know, they'd hear that I did it, and then maybe they, they would feel like they could do it the next year. Um, and so that kind of also leads into why I've done a few of the things that I've done. Um, so I think Mark kind of summed it up pretty well. Um, went to the Paralympics in 2012 and, and won a bronze medal in rowing. Uh, rode my bike across the country in 2013. And then the uh, month of marathons was, was uh, 31 marathons in 31 days in 31 different cities um, around the country in, in 2017. And the main reason I did that was to create a story for people to use, uh, a story about this veteran that went overseas and experienced trauma and came back and became stronger because of it and, and thrived from it instead of being destroyed by it. And I wanted to make sure that story got out there because I think that the the primary narrative that we hear about veterans right now is that we're either heroes in war or we're basket cases when we return home. 
And I wanted to make sure that people heard both sides of the story, veterans, so they don't feel like they're being expected to be a certain way when they come home. And then also civilians so that they know the full scope of the story. Um, and so that's why I did the month of marathons to create that story so that anybody that may be struggling, anybody that may be doubting themselves can see that and then know that it's possible for them to recover or get through whatever they're, they're trying to get through. I just wanted to, and, and I, and that's all super inspiring and I could see it in a movie and a book or whatever else you just, however else you decide <laughs> to package it. it I, I believe, I believe wholeheartedly that you can continue to uh, inspire people and basically lead with, uh, with your, I call it experiential leadership. The fact that you, you have these experiences and, and you can, uh, you can devise lessons from it. Mm-hmm. And I did want to, I tried to, I don't want to steal Mark's, Mark, are you going to ask about his shirt or can I? Uh, no, you, I was going to, but you oh, no, go please ahead. Do. No, no, please do. No, I, I, because one of, there was a couple things. The first is that I, I know you had raised uh, funds for a number of organizations, among them the Semper Fi Fund, which mm-hmm. I, I hear wonderful things about. I actually, uh, I went on a uh, rafting trip with a bunch of wounded Marines and some uh, Navy corpsmen through the Grand Canyon that Semper Fi Fund had helped out with. And her awesome. great things. And now, obviously, you're also you're, you're a member of uh, American Legion Post 295 in Middleburg. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as you're looking forward, what's the next chapter of Rob Jones? I assume you're going to continue to write your own story that people behind you can follow. But where, where are you looking now at this time? Um, yeah, so after the month of marathons, I, I ran for office in 2020. I ran for the House of Representatives around here. I uh, didn't make it past the primary, um, but I, I tried to do that as another way to serve in kind of this role that is not very pleasant, um, but needs to but needs good people in it. And so I tried to do that, but uh, like I said, didn't make it past the primary. Um, now I'm I'm continuing to work on my memoir. Uh, to so my my main goal is to continue to make sure that the story that I've created and that I've been writing gets out to as many people as possible um, so they can use it. And so um, that's why I, you know, I do speaking engagements uh, to tell the story and verbally, I write my book to try and do it in, in that. I you know, try and do documentaries and videos and that kind of thing just to, to get this story out as, as much as possible. And then going forward, you know, I'm, uh, I'm married now. Uh, I have a wife named Pam who I met at the Paralympics in 2012. And we have a son together named uh, Harry. He's a year and a half almost. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, try and be the best dad and husband I can be. But uh, moving forward in terms of the motivational stuff, uh, I don't have anything officially planned right now in terms of something along the lines of a month of marathons or a bike trip. But I do continue to work with the Semper Fi Fund, Tunnel to Towers Foundation, two of the charities that I raise money for. And just, you know, I run the Marine Corps Marathon frequently. Uh, I run the 5Ks. I do stair climbs. You know, I just kind of do these smaller events uh, where people can kind of see like a double above knee amputee running the marathon. Like how many people um, see that every time I do it? And they don't have to know my name. They just have to see that this this guy was running the marathon uh, or this guy climbed 2,200 and whatever many steps in the World Trade Center. 
Um, and I just want them to see that. So they continue to see this example of what's, you know, what can be done. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm brainstorming different things in terms of a, a little bit of a larger event, but I don't have anything officially planned right now. Awesome. Well, I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll keep us updated on whatever you do come up with, because I'm, I'm sure it'll be uh, something special and your story is incredibly inspirational. Uh, yeah, so thank we you. really, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to us today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, everybody else, remember to subscribe to the Tango Alpha Lima podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, review and rate us. If you want to send us feedback, you can comment on YouTube or Facebook, or you can send us an email at tangoalphalima at legion.org. We'll be back with another 911 story tomorrow, and we will see you then, guys. Bye.